0: Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today we're speaking with Heather Augustine, the author of Songbirds, Pioneering Women in Jamaican Music. Welcome Heather.
1: Hi, thanks for having me, Stephen.
0: No problem. Uh, I loved your book. I'm looking forward to getting into it with you. One of the things I found fascinating straight from the start is you opened the book noting that the Jamaican music industry from the 40s to the 80s, really, was more than simply male-dominated and takes away some of the reality of what was really going on. Can you explain that?
1: Sure. It was a space that very few women were allowed into. And when I say that, I mean that men were... The ones that were in the studio, they were the proprietors of the stages and the clubs. And so they were really the ones who were doing the hiring. When I say women weren't allowed in that space, that's what I mean. Because first of all, music was already seen as lowbrow in Jamaica. Men of a certain stature were not supposed to be involved in music. It was too lowbrow. And then for a woman to be involved in music, well, that was really scandalous. So it was frowned upon by society. It was also frowned upon by those who were the gatekeepers of the entry points into the industry. So for a woman to be involved, uh, she really had to clear some hurdles and defy a lot of family, society, society. Uh, those people that were involved in the industry, women would have really come up against a lot of opposition. And so that's why I look at these women. and, And I tried to go back quite a bit as far as I could, so that they were given recognition, respect, validation, extremely marginalized group that we're looking at here.
0: In part of that, you mentioned the colonial and the caste system. And, um, you know, I noticed how many women in the book, most, if not all, really, referenced the challenges of children and family obligations for women singers.
1: The traditional roles that really existed during this time in many different countries were extremely strong. Um, in Jamaica, women were expected to be the caretakers of the children and to take care of the household. And so, the jobs that they would have had if they did have a job would have been really relegated to that realm. So housekeepers, um, domestic workers, things like that. But really women weren't expected to work. And the only women who did work uh, were women that didn't have men to take care of them. So to have a career as an orchestra leader band leader, I mean, that's just unheard of, but yet there were a few. They still would have been expected to be child bearers. And many of them were, they would have been torn between these two worlds of having to be, you know, taking care of their children and then singing or leading or performing or dancing on the stages. So it really was, it's mind boggling. I don't know how they did it.
0: Well, there's an interesting one uh, who kind of covered all the bases, and she was just a towering figure in Jamaican music. And that's Sister Iggy, who played a lot of instruments. She wasn't a performer, but she was a nun in the legendary Alpha Boys School, which birthed many, many, many famous musicians.
1: Right. Sister Iggy, when you think, um, you know, as a nun, obviously she didn't have any of her own children. But she did have her own children. She had every single boy that came through that school. And at times there were upwards of 600, 700 boys that lived at this school. This school is located, it's still there today. It's called the Alpha Institute. I would check them out because they have a fantastic radio station. They play only Alpha alumni. Um, and there are many of them. She established the band at this school because it was a trade that could earn a boy a career after graduations. They would go to their traditional curriculum classes of, you know, math and, and English and things like that. But then they would, after school, go to their trade. So they would learn, you know, brick making, tailoring, gardening, woodworking, And band was one that if a boy was selected, typically by Sister Ignatius, because maybe they displayed some sort of proclivity to music or they had the perfect mouth shape for trumpet. I mean, seriously, these were the things they were sent to talk to the bandmaster. So Lenny Hibbert or um, Ruben Delgado, one of the, the band leaders at the time. Uh, who they were themselves frequently alpha boys who had graduated. Sparrow Martin was one through the uh, 80s and 90s and up until quite recently. And he was an alpha alumni as well. And they led a fairly rigorous uh, band program training boys in classical music up until you know, 1962. They were getting all of their music from England and they would learn you know chords and progressions and augmented scales and diminished scales and it was very rigorous. And then they could get a a job afterwards in one of the bands that was established in Kingston, like the Colony Club or the Silver Slipper, or the Glass Bucket, or more of them found work in the military bands. So they you know, it was a good living. She saw this and she saw this as an opportunity for her boys. And she would bring in the band leaders to recruit early. And they would say, you know, I think I'll take that one, that one, that one. And then afterwards they would get employment in the band and it was enough to earn a living at that time. So she developed the program through bringing in bandmasters, by bringing in recruiters, the band leaders, and also by um, acquiring instruments in the early years, um, because very early on, it was just a Drum and Fife core. Um, so she acquired donations through the Archdiocese and Sisters of Mercy and would get the instruments for the boys uh, to learn on. So, I mean, I, I've written a book called um, Alpha Boy School Cradle of Jamaica Music with my co-author, Adam Reeves. And we take a look at um, each one of these major musicians, but I mean, it's like a roll call of who's who in Jamaica. And these were the musicians who transformed the classical that they had knowledge of, the jazz that they were playing in these clubs, because that's what the tourists wanted to hear, the mento that they were brought up on, because that's the indigenous music, The American Rhythm and Blues that they're hearing and loving on the transistor radios. And they're the ones that are really the backbone of what becomes ska, what becomes rock steady, what becomes reggae. They're playing it in the clubs. They're playing it in the studios. They're playing it behind Bob Marley when he gets his start. They're playing it behind Peter Tosh when he gets his start. Without Sister Ignatius Davies the shape of Jamaican music would not look the same, period. Can we say there'd be no Bob Marley? Who knows? Nobody could really make a claim like that, but it would definitely be very, very different.
0: Yeah, the uh, the list of, of men who came out of that school and, and transformed the music is astonishing. And, you know, Jamaican music, there were so many different styles. And what was really interesting with this book of yours is that women were there— pretty much from the beginning, you know, Calypso was an early form of the music from Trinidad and Tobago and Calypso Rose is considered the mother of Calypso. How influential was she?
1: Extremely influential. She was influential as a woman influential as a performer. And those are kind of two different things we have to really look at. So as a performer, um, she was kind of brought up on this music, um, in Trinidad. She was going into the Calypso tents as a, a young girl and witnessing that part of culture and really took to it. It's interesting because Calypso really isn't Jamaican. It's Trini, um, but it's, it kind of all blends because it's the Caribbean and the, and the Jamaican form of mento is very similar. So a lot of people confuse those. They're different, but in many ways, very similar. They come from kind of similar origins. Um, But she is seeing things that transpire around her and writing songs about them. And that's one of the traditions of Calypso and Mento is that it is a storytelling style of music so that the lyrics become commentary on the culture. It's important for gossiping. It's important for telling news in a way that, you know, they didn't have TV, they didn't have newspapers, you know, that were readily available. So it, it has a function. So she's telling about things. So she's warning people, you know, hey, look, there was this woman who had her glasses taken off right off her face and stolen by a glass thief. Be careful because the, the streets are full of thieves, everyone. And, and so she's telling these stories of, of warning in her Calypso songs in the tent Um, and so she begins to make a name for herself by winning these competitions during carnival when women really weren't allowed in the tent even but because she was a little girl they kind of during that time they kind of bent the rules a little bit and she was so spectacular that oh look isn't she cute that's kind of a novelty well then she really grows with her art and begins to establish herself and her career, and she's beating all of the men. Now, this was not allowed. They didn't have a rule for this. You know, it was Calypso King. You know, how can we crown a Calypso Queen? It's called Calypso King. They didn't even have a name for it. So when she started winning, they would say, you can't win. I'm sorry, you'll get second place. Um, But then when she would challenge that and then win again and again, um, pretty soon they had to change the name of the award and it became like Calypso Monarch. And so that's how she's known. And she she was, you know, and, and she is still very, very famous. She's become kind, I think she even performed in Coachella a couple of years ago. So she's kind of a big deal even still today. And she's kind of up there a little bit in her age, but um, check her out. She is really um, a legend. That's for sure.
0: Definitely. And, you know, you mentioned ska and, you know, that emerged from Calypso and, and American R&B in the 50s and would be hugely influential throughout Jamaican music, eventually leading to rock steady, which is my personal favorite period. And then reggae, of course. One of the most iconic ska songs that everyone can sing along to, and they know it whether they know they do or not, is one by Millie Small.
1: Right, right. Millie Small is coming up right during this era um, as a little girl. Um, She was from a very small village called, um, I believe it was Millclane. But she, like many young people during this time, is hearing ska on the radio and hearing American Rhythm and Blues on the radio and loves it. And the newspapers during this time it was really the Jamaica star would carry the lyrics of some of these songs. And so like the American rhythm and blues songs, um, you know, she would hear the the song and then read the lyrics. And of course, sing along. She came to Kingston, she came to record and to try, you know, her performance on stage. And she began singing with like many women, um, with men as part of a duet, She got the attention of Chris Blackwell. And um, she was singing with Roy Panton. But it was Roy and Millie during this time that were singing duets together. And Chris Blackwell heard their song, We'll Meet. And that song um, was very popular. And he heard that voice. That voice is distinctive. It's very effervescent. It's higher register. It's adorable, frankly. And uh, he heard it and he said, I have to get that that girl to sing for me on my new label. So when he goes to England, he thinks, well, I think she would be a big hit here. She would be a big crossover. So he tells the people that he was in business with at the time that were very um, new in founding his label, Island Records. And uh, he tells them, you know, please bring this girl. She was a girl. She was all but 15 years old. Bring her to England. I'm going to make her a star. That's exactly what he did. They had to forge her passport so that she could go get special permission from her mom and dad. And she went and he was essentially her guardian, took excellent care of her, but sent her to speech school to kind of get rid of a little of the Jamaican patois. He kind of took the Jamaica out of her, frankly, um, in order to make her more palatable for European audiences and worldwide audiences. Um, Taught her how to dance in the kind of 60s style that was very popular during that time. Had this song. It was originally a Barbie gay song called My Boy Lollipop. And he had that song rewritten the the music um, written by one of the main arrangers was Ernest Wranglin, Ernie Wranglin, who played guitar. Um, and then the rest were English musicians, so that it sounded not too Jamaican, but just a little quirky, and released it and it was a massive hit. I think it even charted above Beatles, the you know, the nineteen sixty four when it came out. It came, massive hit. She toured all over the world. She put Jamaica on the map that year. And when she came home to Jamaica in August of 1964, her homecoming, people swarmed the tarmac. Graham Goodall told me the only time he saw more people swarm a plane on the tarmac is when Halle Selassie came in 1966. So that says a lot. Yeah, that song is ska. And it's, it's one of the first ways that people heard Ska. And when they did, uh, a lot of them then wanted to hear more, learn more, and they continued in that same vein.
0: Well, that song certainly still puts a smile on my face. It's, it's just so energetic and fun. What is it you think that made Ska so popular in, in Jamaica?
1: Oh boy, that is a really good question. I think, um, Jamaica was newly independent in 1962. It was a very exciting time when Jamaicans were filled with hope and promise, and they were freed from the shackles of the colonizer. And they were looking to establish their own identity. There was an overt push by the Jamaican government to establish that identity through Jamaican music. And Jamaican culture, um, in the name of driving tourism to Jamaica, but also in in order to establish this newly independent identity. But the spirit, the the zeitgeist of Jamaica during this time was one of positivity and hope and excitement. And you know, we're independent. I mean, that's it's a joyous time. Scott is a joyous music, and so. It's no coincidence that the music is reflecting that same spirit of the people. Ska during 1962, 1961, 62, 63, 64, is the same time that they're shedding their shackles. And so it's, it's an escape from the very real pressures of a newly established government with uncertainty, but certainly hope. But for the most part, it's a joyous music. And I think that's just because it's part of the fabric of society.
0: That's pretty spot on. And and it's interesting because, you know, you said that earlier, you know, you wanted in this book to, to sh- shine a light on a lot of these people who many may not know. But, you know, let's talk about some of the women like Hortense Ellis, who you dub in her chapter, the first lady of song. And she would ride the waves of R&B, Ska, rock steady, but she was one tough cookie.
1: <laughs> I love her. She's my favorite. She's kind of my, my spirit woman. So Hortons Ellis is the sister of Alton Ellis. So if any of your listeners have familiarity with, you know, certainly the rock steady era, they've probably heard of Alton Ellis. Likely not heard of Hortons unless you're a, a geek. Um, like like me. But Hordons Ellis was really the woman who had, um, she had success before him. And I would argue that she had greater success, um, but certainly not then as history bore it out. She got her start through the Beer Johns Opportunity Hour, which was a talent show that gave many, many people their start. I mean, really anybody who became anybody went through the Veer Johns opportunity hour. So either like Alpha or Veer Johns. That was really it. So Veer John's was a was kind of like a American idol, you know. So people came in, um, they they did their talent, then the audience would vote on who was the winner by the most applause. Certainly there was corruption, you know, there was some parking lot deals being made for sure. But Hortons Ellis was consistently winning and she won and beat her brother I just want to say that (laughs) point that out she beat her brother but her brother um, you know really never let that go I'm sure there was some family rivalry the whole Ellis family was very successful um, all kind of performers and so it was a family rivalry I think between Hortons and Alton but you know, maybe the competition produced these two wonderful stars, but Hortons had nine children. And so how could she possibly have the freedom to have a career, have the the luxury of having a career? She didn't, she did not have that choice. Men had choices, women did not. She was involved during the recording era. Um, She recorded a number of of hit songs. And, you know, she performed as a duo, part of a duo with, with a number of very popular men during this time. So, um, you know, like Jackie Opal, Jackie Edwards, Derek Morgan, anybody who was anyone they were matched with her. And so frequently, and this was the case, kind of a lot of times the record producers wouldn't pay right away or at all. She would go march down there and she would get sharp with them and, you know, say, I want my pay. And they didn't like that. And so she would be, you know, overlooked for maybe somebody who was a little bit more compliant. One of my very favorite songs that she sings is Woman of the Ghetto, which is a Marlena Shaw song. If you listen to the words, you can hear the pain in her voice. It's a, a rock steady tune, a, a slow rock steady tune, but you can just really hear the pain in her voice. You know, that's the thing you hear about Jamaican music. A lot of the, the lyrics are very painful. You know, I mean, Bob Marley's only got a single bed, you know, and that's kind of, it's, you know, it's, it's a meager existence, but yet it's very joyful. Don't worry about a thing, you know, and that's kind of how Hortons was too. And you listen to these lyrics, they're just so painful, but yet there's something sweet about it. And that's the life experience.
0: So Phyllis Dillon is one of my favorites. She worked with some amazing producers and musicians. You know, that's sort of testament to her skills, for sure. Uh, You know, It's Rock and Time, also known as Rock Steady. Perfidia, one of my all-timers, with Tommy McCook and Picture on the Wall. They're just amazing songs. And going back and hearing them, they really stand the test of time really well.
1: They do. I think, I mean, she's got... A voice. I mean, that's it. The, the The talent is, it really comes through and that's what's really going to last for forever. I've been in some chat rooms where people are having these, you know, throw down debates over who has the best voice. And it's like, Phyllis is always coming out on top. That's why I love Hortons too. But I mean, her voice is is a talent. That's why she's going to always stay. But, you know, I mean, her her songs too, She's she's, first of all, she's taking the lead in these songs. She's, the, the spotlight. That's a big deal. You know, I mean, she was a little bit later than, you know, somebody like Patsy Todd, or, you know, even like Horton Salas, you know, the, the, those that were relegated to the to the duo. So she's able to have the spotlight, but then she's singing about topics that are, I think, a little bit body In fact, she's singing some mento you know, classical songs like Don't Touch Me Tomato. I mean, that's a that's a Mento song. And she's recreating it for the new genre, of, you know, Rocksteady, taking it out of the, the Mento version and the Calypso version. You know, when she sings it, it's like, I don't know, really know how to put words on it. But there's something that when she sings it, it's like it's it's cute and it's sweet and it's cheeky and it's fun and it's playful. I think she kind of has that appeal too. I think what I really like about Phyllis Dillon too is that there's, it's really just her voice that, you're, that we're kind of left with. I mean, it's not like, during this time too, and like, it's not like you're gonna have videos or film of them or whatever. So all you can do is listen. All you can do is hone in on that voice and hear it. You're not distracted by the glitz and the pyrotechnics and all that. All you can hear is that voice, and hers is so crystal clear and pure that I think that's what makes it have that longevity.
0: Well, you mentioned Don't Touch Me, Tomato, which was a huge hit. I mean, just massive, and it is filled with some innuendo. But you also write that in today's culture of slackness, it's difficult to comprehend that song's impact.
1: Well, yeah, because women have been more empowered now. We're kind of, we've had the way paved for us so that we can say things that we couldn't say before. When Phyllis Dillon would say, you know, things like all you do is squeeze up, squeeze up. I mean, that was a big deal to say that then. I mean, there were lyrics during the Mento era that were banned. I mean, Night Food was banned. That song was very lewd. Her innuendo, you know, in this, in choosing this song, because they're not her lyrics, but in choosing this song, they weren't lewd. Um, It was still kind of like, you know, with innocence. um, And the message is still, you know, kind of, It's it's barely cloaked, but it's you know we we get what she's saying, but it's still sweet, so it's not lewd. But that was a time of women empowerment, and so by her saying this, it's it's a little bit feminist, frankly, because she's in charge of who gets to squeeze up, squeeze up, and say you know all all you do is that you know so don't touch me tomato. Um, that's kind of that's a big deal that she's calling the shots. We can't take this song out of context. It's not that big of a deal today. During that time, it was. And it was more for the reasons of empowerment than it was for lewdness.
0: We're speaking with Heather Augustine, whose book is Songbirds, Pioneering Women in Jamaican Music. So in 1963, a young man approaches a 16-year-old Beverly Kelso after hearing her sing in a fun club. Uh, he asked her to come and sing with his group at, at any time, and she knows him as Lester. But for us?
1: He's Bob Marley. That's Bob Marley. Yeah, and so Beverly Kelso. I, I've just seen recently with the death of, of Bunny um, that people are saying that, that he was the last whaler, and and that's just not true because Beverly Kelso is still with us. And Beverly was singing on these early Bob Marley and the Whaler songs. If you listen to Simmer Down, classic, one of the very first recorded, you will hear Beverly Kelso and sang at Studio One when Bob Marley, you know, got his start. Um, she started like many women during this time singing in her, her school choir. You know, they kind of all grew up together in Trenchtown and they were all together and just singing, this was, you know, during the era of kind of doo-wop, you know, if you think about like Curtis Mayfield and, um, you know, that kind of era, that's who they'd be hearing. And so they're doing all this harmonizing, and Beverly Kelso was an integral part of it during this time. So they were friends, um, They, you know, they'd be goofing around, and um, they were very young, very, very young. But she sang on d- probably at least 12, 15 of his early songs.
0: And she would have an impact on his life by also introducing him to a friend of hers.
1: Right. Rita, who later became uh, his wife, actually his lifelong wife, though not his sole companion, <laughs> as we all know. Um, but it, his his lifelong wife uh, at that time was Rita Anderson, Um, she already had a baby at that point from another man so Beverly and Rita became friends because she would see Rita in the yard and 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 loved you know the little baby would come over and say you know oh let me see your baby and and things like that Um, but then she um, yeah introduced them and uh, that that story is one for the history books
0: there was another Studio One singer, Norma Fraser, who allegedly taught Rita how to sing. And she's one where it's really difficult to find some of her recorded output. But she also recorded with Dwight Pinckney and Roland Alfonso and Lord Creator and was very influential.
1: She was a little bit more during the, you know, the later years, I think. Her reggae output was was greater than Scon Rock Steady. She performed with the Wailers, you know, from time to time too, but in later years. She sang you know, a number of different kind of covers of songs too. She sang Aretha Franklin's Respect and the First Cut is the Deepest. Really, she was more of a performer on stage than in the studio, so not a whole lot.
0: Well, perhaps some of the most iconic women singers are the ones who did uh, back up Bob Marley later with the Whalers, the I-3 or the I-3s, and Rita was part of that group. And you mentioned that she'd recorded before. She was in a band called The Soulettes. And then the other two who rounded out that were quite, you know, impressive singers before they came and sang with Bob. And that would be Marcia Griffiths and Judy Mowatt.
1: I mean, Marcia Griffiths had been singing with Bob Andy before she recorded with Bob Marley, And they had, a, I mean, a very successful career, really, as a, a duet team. And so they recorded for Harry J, who was a very big producer um, during that time, Harry Johnson. And they, they toured in England. They were on top of the Pops. I mean, really, their, one of their most famous songs was Young, Gifted and Black, the, um, the cover of that song by Nina Simone, which is also a very good version. Um, but that song is a duet of the two of them together. And it's, it's outstanding um, and really put them kind of on the map as an entertainment team. But after that, yeah, she became part of the I threes. She had already known them and then, you know, came to be the, the, that iconic backup that we've seen on all these, the concert footage, she still sings all the time. Uh, a legend, an absolute legend. So look for her when things get back to normal.
0: And also look for Young, Gifted in Black, because that's not a very good cover. I would argue that is a great cover. And it, it is incredible. And we've put together uh, with some of Heather's input, a Spotify playlist based on this. And it has the cover of her book, which by the way, I love. I have the older version, the Uh, paintbrush one, which is is perfect for the the music. And uh, you can hear a bunch of those here. So if you don't know these folks, go and check it out. Certainly pick up Heather's book. A story in your book that's really good. I wondered if you'd tell it to our listeners. Um, You know, Griffiths tells an incredible story about her very first time on stage as a very young girl.
1: So Marcia, she was very shy, but she was singing and she came in to um to try out for something and she she had to sing like not facing the band or something but um when she was singing to, to try out for 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 performing she she nailed it I mean she's 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 very very good and she was supposed to be put on a bill with Byron Lee and the Dragonairs and it was I think it was like an Easter show or something and um you know, the the person that had heard her sing and everything came to Byron Lee and says, Got to put this person on your bill. You've got to have her sing right away on your performance verb. And he says, No, 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 I don't have any room. I can't do that. We already have everything all set up. Byron Lee and the Dragonairs were a, a really predominant band performing like almost every night of the week in the various cities around, uh, Jamaica, very polished, very professional, literally shoes have to be polished. The uniforms are the same. Everything's tight. You show up on time. He can't just throw somebody new into the mix and have, you know, her sing a couple songs. So no way. And this guy, and I can't remember who it was now, if it was, it was Graham Goodall says, no, no, no. Trust me. You've got to have her sing. She's amazing. And so he says, you know, well, all right, let's let's have her practice a couple songs or whatever. And he, you know, she practices and the band is just kind of like, whatever. Um, And and he hears her and it's like, okay, all right, fine. So come tomorrow night, be there at this, at the show, whatever. So she shows up at the show. The band is not happy that at the last minute, this person has been thrown into the mix and it's going to disrupt everything. And we already have a program planned and how are we going to play whatever song? And so they play the song and I can't remember what the song was. Maybe you can remind me what I wrote, but it was like a, a cover of somebody else's song and she sings it. And, and the band is not playing with her. You know, they start off and they kind of like lead the song and they're, they're, they're purposely trying to make her look bad because they just don't like it that this little girl has thrown them off their game. And so they're purposely kind of like playing all kind of off key and off sync and everything. She just continues with her performance and sings and thinks they better get with me. And so she sings it and nails it. And the audience goes wild, wild love her. And then they're like, encore, encore, encore. she only has the one song. So they played it again. Mm
0: Well, and if I'm not mistaken, that performance put her on television and in the Studio One recording studios on the very same day.
1: It did, yeah, because everybody then was like, we've got to get her. Who is this person? Yeah, so JBC and everybody was trying to grab her. And I think that's when, I think it was Coxson from Studio One and you know like, come on in. So really opened some doors really quickly.
0: You know, and the last one is Judy Mowat, who would you know, she started out in an all-female trio, the Gay Letts, and their single went to number one on both of the Jamaican radio stations. And uh, you write in your book that she became one of the queens of reggae after she took a stance against some of the traditional roles of male dominance in the industry.
1: She had a producer who wanted to tell her how she should dress. And she did not like that. And she, she said no. And, you know, and, and took a stand, really. But that was a big deal. So it wasn't uncommon for men to kind of exploit the sexuality of women. And um, Judy wouldn't let that happen.
0: There's been a lot written on the role of the I-3s and their influence and effect on Bob Marley and the Whalers. And, you know, you mentioned the dress and you mentioned having the woman's presence, you know, and some very militant at times music. What do you think was their influence on, on Bob Marley and the Whalers?
1: I've read a number of different kind of interpretations of their dress. Some feminists don't like it because they think that it's more of the traditional kind of dress. I think it was an African style that brought awareness and Africanness to Bob's music through the appearance. And fashion is really important when it comes to um, especially women because it is another form of expression, more so for women, I think, um, artistically. But um, it also, in my opinion, softens some of the, as you acknowledge, the militantism of Bob, not in a way that it dampens it, but in a way that makes it received better and received more, so that if it doesn't have that harsh, brash edge, like someone say like Peter Tosh could have. Then it can be received, thought about, you know, mulled over, incorporated, accepted, and then championed. In my opinion, um, that's what the presence of those three women really allows to happen. So they're kind of a delivery mechanism of his message.
0: Yeah, that's very well said. I think that uh, that's exactly right. You know, if you want somebody to, to listen to the message, sometimes you need to get their attention first, whether it be through those kinds of things. But there's so many other great singers we haven't touched on. We could do this all day. There's Don Penn and Susan Cadigan, Althea and Donna. And I encourage all of our listeners to pick up Heather's book. It's Heather Augustine, Songbirds, Pioneering Women in Jamaican Music, there's one more extremely important person I want to touch on. And I have, there are some uh, uh, compilation CDs of her label. Sonia Pottinger is mm. a truly groundbreaking woman, and she's not a musician. Can you just uh, quickly t- fill our listeners in on her story?
1: Right. Okay. So, Sonia Pottinger was a businesswoman, she was a record producer. She had taken over her husband's record label. Um, After they divorced, he was a philanderer. Um, And so she didn't put up with that. And she divorced him and then took over the, the business. He didn't really have an interest in it anyway. She certainly did. And so there are a number of different labels that she ran. She had an exceptional ear. She paid people on time. They knew that if they came to her that they were going to, you know, get paid. That's a big deal that that couldn't be said for everybody. So a lot of people wanted to work for her. She had a sign on her desk that said heaven will protect the working girl. I just love that. Um, and she was, you know, she just she kind of had an ear for what would be successful. Largely, what she had an ear for was was um, women and, and supporting women's voices. And so I mean, first of all, you know, there was very little coverage in the newspapers of music in general, because I said, as I said at the beginning here, music was considered lowbrow. And so the papers, many of which were, you know, colonial or established in that colonial system, they just didn't cover music as a business or as an art form. Um, The Jamaica Star did, but it still was a bit sparse. So... Um, there there was very little on music but even less on women like sonia pottinger when i did come across any articles on sonia pottinger and this was during about the 1970s it was always on what she was wearing and it would say you know Miss Sonia pottinger was seen at this you know gala wearing you know in peach chiffon accented with pearls and a scarf you know matching handbag and i just couldn't believe it because in my mind she's a massively influential businesswoman, and has to be in order to run a record label.
0: There is, and it might be on heartbeat records where I, I worked for a while and uh, I think they have a compilation on, on her and it's, it the music holds up. I mean, she was incredibly influential and talented.
1: They do. They do. And that's a great comment. I believe it's a two CD set and it's a fantastic one.
0: Well, I'd like to thank you, Heather. Uh, it's been a fascinating uh, discussion for our listeners, uh, we got two hours worth of music for you as we head into summer here. There's nothing like it, you know, sit outside with something cold and something on the grill. And Heather's input, uh, as she listens to it, we're going to uh, make sure we've got everyone who should be on there on there. So thank you very much, Heather. We really appreciate you joining us. Thank
1: you, Stephen. This has really been fun.
0: If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at FullSound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one of a kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.